as we get into the into the message this morning, as I was in study and preparation for this morning's message, uh, something interesting took place. And as I went through the process of of choosing a, a scripture topic and a passage, um, every article that I read and and every internet search I conducted, every topic considered, in some way led me back to the to the passage for today. And I've not. I can't say that I've had that happen quite in this way before. So, um, again, I, I am trusting in the leading of the Holy Spirit that this is exactly where God wanted us to be this morning. So our passage today um, is from the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 28. In the first 15 verses of this chapter, <clears throat> we read of Jesus, a risen Savior, uh, revealing himself to Mary Magdalene and the women after their encounter with the angel at the burial tomb and the shrewd attempt of the cover-up by the, by the chief priests. But today we'll pick up uh, in verses 16 through 20, and I'm reading from uh, the New King James Version. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. It is interesting to note uh, that Matthew doesn't tell us of the Jerusalem appearances of Jesus as recorded in the book of John, but rather he illustrates the fulfillment of Scripture called out in Matthew twenty six thirty two, where Jesus told them that after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee It is here at this predetermined meeting place that the disciples gathered and Jesus comes to them. And we're told that while they worshipped him, some doubted. Which may seem strange, as this isn't the first encounter with the risen Jesus. However, we're told there's still doubt amongst the group. In his commentary, David Guzik describes the emotion captured in this passage as the natural reaction to encountering the risen Jesus being worship, even if some had to overcome uncertainty and hesitation. He surmises that this probably arose from a feeling that it was too good to be true and a lingering shame for having forsaken Jesus during his suffering. We could surmise then that This isn't a skeptical doubt. This isn't an attitude of, I don't believe it, but rather one of, can you believe it? And this doubt also argues against the theory that they're seeing Jesus was simply a hallucination born of a desperate desire to see him. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus prefaces his upcoming command with the reminder of his authority. 
In the same manner, we might see a commanding officer remind a private of his rank before he gives an order. This reminder indicates that the words that follow are not merely a suggestion, but rather an authoritative command. In this scripture, we're also to understand Jesus' equality with God the Father, with his assertion of having all authority in both heaven and earth. And now the Great Commission. Go there, go therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Spurgeon reminds us that Jesus said go to some very imperfect disciples when he wrote the following. Who is to go out of that first band of disciples? It is Peter, the rash and the headstrong. It is John who sometimes wishes to call fire from heaven to destroy men. It is Philip, with whom the Savior has been so long, and yet he has not known him. It is Thomas, who must put his finger into the print of the nails, or he will not believe him. Yet the Master says to them, Go ye, all power is given unto me, therefore go ye. You are as good for my purpose as anyone else would be. There is no power in you, I know. But then all power is in me, therefore go ye. It is the same commission for us today to go, regardless of imperfection, in spite of our own powerlessness on our own, to go in the authority of Christ in which there is an authority no greater trusting that he will empower us to make disciples of all the nations. But what does that mean exactly? To make disciples of all the nations, that on its surface seems like a truly formidable task. And when we examine further, the commandment is to make, the command is to make disciples. The idea behind the word disciple is of scholars learners or students. The command is not to make converts. The command is not to make supporters. The command is not to make regularly tithing attendees. The command is to make disciples. R.C. Sproul defines a disciple as one who directs their mind toward a specific knowledge and conduct, a learner or pupil. He then provides the following illustration The Greek philosophers, people such as Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, had disciples. Socrates described himself ultimately as a disciple of Homer, the person Socrates regarded as the greatest thinker of all of Greek history. And while we tend to think of Homer as a poet rather than a philosopher, Socrates saw him as the supreme teacher of ancient Greece. Then, of course, Socrates had his own student. His chief, his chief disciple, whose name was Plato. Plato had his disciples, the chief one being Aristotle. Aristotle also had his disciples, the most famous being Alexander the Great. And it is astonishing to think about how drastically the ancient world was shaped 
by these four men, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and Alexander the Great. In fact, it's nearly impossible to understand the history of Western civilization without understanding the influence of these four individuals who in their own way were each disciples of another. Discipleship in the biblical sense involves walking with the teacher and learning from his words. But it's more than that. Jesus was a rabbi. And of course, the most important peripatetic teacher and disciple maker in history. Wherever he walked, his students would follow. At the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he chose particular individuals to be his disciples. They were required to memorize the teachings that he spoke as he walked. What's more, people didn't file an application to get into the school of Jesus. Jesus selected his disciples. He went to prospective disciples where they were, whether in the marketplace or at their place of work, and gave this simple command, follow me. The command was literal. He called them to drop their present duties. They had to leave their work their families, and their friends in order to follow Jesus. Jesus was more than just a peripatetic teacher, however. His disciples called him master. Their entire way of life changed because of their following Jesus, not merely as a great teacher, but as the Lord of all. That's the essence of discipleship, submitting fully to the authority of Christ the one whose lordship goes beyond just the classroom. Jesus' lordship encompasses all life. The Greek philosophers learned from their teachers, but then tried to improve upon that teaching. Christ's disciples have no such warrant. We are called to understand and teach only what God has revealed through Christ, including the Old Testament scriptures, for they point to Christ, and the New Testament scriptures, for they are the words of those Christ appointed to speak in his name. The Great Commission is the call of Christ for his disciples to extend his authority over the whole world. We are to share that gospel with everyone so that more and more people might call him master. This calling is not simply a call to evangelism. Rather, Christ calls us to make disciples. Disciples are people who have committed in their hearts and their minds to follow the thinking and conduct of the master forever. Such discipleship is a lifelong experience. I like R.C. Sproul's example and illustration of the ancient Greek uh, philosophers. However, for those of you who know me, that's really not my wheelhouse. So, football fans might recognize the word disciple in regards to a coach who has studied under, worked with, or has first-hand knowledge of a particular coach. And in many failed instances, this pedigree is the only qualification required when considered for employment. And there have been more than a few millionaire coaching hires made due to the fact that they were a Nick Saban or Bill Belichick disciple. It is important to also understand the command is to make disciples, meaning that they are made. Disciples are not spontaneously created at conversion. They are the product of a process involving other believers. This making of disciples is the power of spreading Christianity.
Jesus' instruction is for the disciples, is for disciples to be made of all the nations. This commission is for all humankind, Jew and Gentile alike, to the ends of the earth. There is no place on earth where the gospel should not be preached and where disciples should not be made. Additionally, we'll see in Jesus' uh, words a break from traditional uh, Judaism as Jesus commands them not to circumcise those who became disciples, but rather to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. His instruction is to teach, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Disciples are made through teaching, not with words only, but with the power of the always present Jesus. And it is in this passage of Scripture that we see Jesus transition the role of teacher from himself to his disciples. As up until this point, Jesus alone has been the teacher. Now the disciples will take over his role of teaching. Jesus would send them with a mission to fulfill, but they were not alone. Jesus' promise of his constant presence was more than enough to strengthen and guide the disciples as they went about this mission. Sproul concludes that when we're involved in discipleship, we do not graduate until we get to heaven. Discipleship is a lifelong experience of learning the mind of Christ and following the will of Christ submitting ourselves in complete obedience to his lordship. Thus, when Jesus tells us to go to all nations, we are to go into all the world with his agenda, not ours. And the Great Commission calls us to flood this world with knowledgeable, articulate Christians who worship God and follow Jesus Christ passionately. Our mission is, discipleship, our mission is discipleship in the biblical sense. By God's grace, we want to help the church raise up a generation of people who are dedicated in heart and soul to the master and his authority. We want to call people to obedience and to following Christ in their daily lives. This is the great commission given by Jesus Christ himself directly to his disciples and in turn to his church at large, which means this is our goal as well both as individual Christians and as a church collective here at Calvary Chapel, Newark. And the the expectation is the same for all believers, for all individual churches, regardless of affiliation or denomination, to make disciples of all the nations. However, statistical analysis makes this task seem all the more daunting. The Barner Group reported in 2019 on discipling amongst Gen Z and millennials and found that spiritual maturity ranked low on the priority list for both generations. Now, if you don't know those categories, I had to look them up myself. Remember that Gen Z is our current generation, the newest generation. And here's where I got a little disappointed because initially the first timeline that I read said it's from 1997 to 2004. And I got excited because both my kids are born outside of that. They're born after that. So I was going to make a joke how nobody wants to hear their opinions. That's not true. You keep telling your mom. 
So Gen Z, uh, when I, when I researched a little further, it, it seems like it's still evolving. The, the latest numbers I had was from 1997 to 2012, roughly ages uh, 9 through 24. And while the generation of millennials encompasses people born from 1981 to 1996, so roughly 25 to 40, people ages 25 to 40. Millennials rank the topic of becoming more mature spiritually sixth out of a list of 12 priorities. Falling behind things such as starting a career, becoming financially independent, finding out who I really am, and following my dreams. The Generation Z age group was even lower, with becoming more mature spiritually ranking ninth out of the list of 12 behind other priorities such as enjoying life before having the responsibilities of an adult, travel to other countries, and getting married. Even more astounding is that in the millennial generation's thoughts on evangelism in general, again, this is age group 25 to 40, in a study of 992 individuals where each not only identified themselves as Christian, but also had to have attended a church service at least once in the previous month, the very high bar, and agreed that their religious faith is very important in their life today. 65% strongly agreed that part of their faith means being a witness for Jesus. Another 31% fell into the category of somewhat agreeing, which means... 96% of millennials agree that part of their faith means to be a witness about Jesus. However, when posed with the following statement, it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. In other words, it is wrong to share your faith as a Christian with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share your Christian beliefs. 28% of of Christian millennials surveyed strongly agreed with this statement, and another 19% somewhat agreed. For those of you not great at math, I've I've done it for you. That's 47% of self-proclaiming Christians that feel that it's wrong to share Jesus Christ with someone of a different faith in hopes that they would one day come to the truth of the gospel. 96% of self-proclaiming Christians in the millennial generation agree that part of their faith means being a witness about Jesus, but half of them don't see the need to bring people outside the body of current believers to the one true gospel. I believe that Christians surveyed failed to understand the whole truth of the gospel where Jesus says in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I also believe we're reaping the harvest of a misguided church entity where the word of God has been set aside because it offends too many. And the theology is watered down to a point where everyone is allowed to choose their own truth. While these statistics are quite eye-opening, it is not a reason to abandon hope. Just our scripture passage today reminds us Jesus 
promise to his disciples that he is the authority that directs. His power is on display in making disciples of all the nations. And his presence is with us daily, even to the end of the age. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. For your presence in this place this morning, Lord, and for the authority that only you possess. We ask and pray, Lord, that you give us your power and presence as we seek to fulfill your command of making disciples of all the nations. Continue to equip us through your word and direct us by your power, Lord, as we strive to serve you in all that we do. We praise you and we thank you for your continued direction upon us each and every day. Love you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.